due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Remember, every secret has a price. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, we discuss the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Network. We're joined by author Anthony R. Wells, who discusses his book, Between Five Eyes, which chronicles 50 years of intelligence sharing, and I've left a link to the book below in the show notes. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can support it in a few ways. First of all, please leave a review on your preferred podcast app. All reviews help us gain more listeners as it raises the awareness of the podcast. I don't know if you know, but all podcast apps are algorithm-based, and the more interaction the show gets, the more listeners it attracts. And just a quick shout out to everybody who's left a review so far. There's been some absolutely wonderful and very kind and in-depth reviews left on iTunes and other podcast apps over the last few months. I've really been blown away by some of them. Some of them have been really super. And thank you so much for taking the time to write those reviews. You can also become a friend of the podcast through Patreon. For £3 a month, you can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show. You'll get a free copy of my film, The Dry Cleaner. And on top of that, I will throw in some extras from time to time. One of them in particular will be a behind-the-scenes look at the podcast, and I'm hoping to organise some Zoom drinks soon. If you enjoy this podcast, you may also enjoy my short film, The Dry Cleaner. The Dry Cleaner is my first attempt at original spy fiction, and is now available on Amazon Prime and iTunes. Without further ado, let's get going, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you on. For the benefit of the listeners, please can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your sort of professional experience, and what led you to writing your book, Between Five Eyes? Well, I, I wrote the book because I thought it was an important subject in this current environment we all live in, with uh, uh, China becoming a rising power, Putin's Russia, yeah. and other threats to um, the, the democracies of which the, clearly the five eyes are very important members, United States, United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. So that was the reason for it, but also to let people know about the five eyes, because it's not a subject that most people know about. They've never really heard of the five eyes. So it was also to uh, let most people, you know, the average layman, know about the five eyes, the history, where we came from as a community and what we what we've done and what we've achieved in the last um, 75 years since World War Two, and also um, you know where we are today and where we need to go in the future, given the current environment, whether it's climate change or China, Russia, or whatever. Fantastic. Um, yeah. But myself, mm. um, you know, I got into the intelligence business in the late 60s uh, through a series of jobs. I was a career naval officer. Um, and got sidetracked into intelligence. Um, I was very privileged uh, also to have as my PhD supervisor, Sir Harry Hinsley, the Bletchley Park codebreaker and the official historian much later on, not in the late 60s, and much later on he wrote the official histories of British intelligence in the Second World War in several volumes, which became the, you know, the government's official record of uh, all of that. And it was he who introduced me to Enigma, and uh, the whole Bletchley Park environment, which he had worked in as a codebreaker, um, particularly working in, uh, you know, in the counter U-boat uh, war against the uh, the Kriegsmarine. So I, I I I I got into it. I had a series of jobs. I came here to Washington to work in the mid 70s, and I came back permanently in 19 late, very late 1983, December, in fact, just before the holidays, to um, work on a special program with the U.S. government which I'd been involved in in the intelligence business, and I was invited to come back and uh, be a lead member on a program, which to, to this day I can't talk about. <laughs> it's one of those silver bullets we uh, you know, we keep in the locker uh, just uh, for the worst situation. But um, I've been here ever since working for the intelligence community, primarily the Central Intelligence Agency and the uh, 
National National Reconnaissance Office. So, you know, I've 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 spent well over 50 years now since the late 60s uh, up until very recently. I finished a project, a uh, UK-US project at the end of uh, 2019. Um, and so I've, I've been around a long time uh, in the business. Yeah, 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 wealth of experience, which is brilliant. And um, so just for the benefit of listeners who are not so familiar with what the Five Eyes is, can you explain to us kind of what the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance is and, and its importance and sort of how it came about? Yeah, absolutely. I think what we should do is go back to the to word go, which was uh, actually the magic date is August the 10th, 1941. Mm. And there was a famous meeting on board HMS Prince of Wales off of uh, Newfoundland in Placentia Bay, a very secret meeting. Winston Churchill had come across the Atlantic under escort in the battleship uh, Prince of Wales, and he met Pre- President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt. He'd come up from Washington, D.C. in the uh, US, USS Augusta very, very secretly and clandestinely. He brought with him uh, several of his uh, most senior, actually, naval officers, Admiral Stark and Admiral, Admiral Starks and King, Stark and King were with him. And, of course, Winston Churchill had his top people with him as well. And that was really to plan the strategy to defeat the Nazis. It was a maritime strategy. It was about using maritime power through initially the assaults in North Africa and then in Sicily, Italy, and of course, later on D-Day on June the 6th, 1944. But there was more than that went on. They went below decks and Winston looked at uh, uh, Franklin and said, well, you know about what we've been up to uh, at Bletchley Park, um, uh, Franklin and and he said to um, uh, President Roosevelt, said to Winston, well, you know what, we're up to at Station Hypo in, in Hawaii. And this was the beginning of the Five Eyes. I regard this as a moment in time when, the, when not just the Atlantic Charter was signed, but the two leaders of the Western world agreed on a way ahead in intelligence sharing. Now, be aware that prior to this, there'd been a very, very significant, hugely secret clandestine operation running out of New York out of the Rockefeller Plaza with a very famous guy, Sir William Stevenson, codename was Intrepid, and he had been working for, between Winston and Franklin, in sharing intelligence data. And the reason he was in Rockefeller Plaza was a covert operation there uh, under a subterfuge of, a, of an actual consular office mm-hmm. running passport uh, things and you know other bureaucratic issues to do with people, uh, Americans moving backwards and forwards to the U.K., well, through that office, um, uh, William Stevenson would communicate with Franklin Roosevelt directly, personally, go down to Washington. This is before the attack on Pearl Harbor, before the United States declared war, when there were a lot of naysayers in Washington, in the media, and in the Congress who were totally against any kind of possible war that was obvious to uh, both leaders that uh, Japan was eventually going to attack uh, somewhere uh, in Asia. But at any rate... The, that was a very, very significant um, gathering because the person that uh, Franklin Roosevelt used as the intermediary was no less, less than William Donovan himself, and that was Wild Bill Donovan, who became the founder of the Office of Strategic Services, OSS, which is the precursor to the founding of the Central Intelligence Agency in um, 1947. And it was the, the Room 39 people uh, in British naval intelligence, the model for OSS, and of course, Admiral John Godfrey, who was the famous director of naval intelligence at the beginning of the war, had as his personal assistant no less than Ian Fleming, Lieutenant Commander Ian Fleming, Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve, who'd been a stockbroker, who Godfrey hired personally as his assistant. And he was the intermediary and helped uh, Wild Bill Donovan in structuring the nature of the OSS through the other clandestine operations that um, Room 39 was organizing. Room 39 was in the Admiralty. It was where uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence operated. And they were very critical in working with Station Hypo in Hawaii, which was where the magic codes were operated, which was parallel to the uh, Bletchley Park Enigma codes, cracking uh, the German codes. And so... Um, that was an incredibly important relationship. That was the beginning of everything that mattered during the war and then ever since, ever since then. Because, And that's why the two navies have been extremely strong because 
Um, the, the Office of Naval Intelligence, the oldest intelligence agency in the world, actually, founded in 1882. It'll be 150 years old in um, 2032. Slightly precursor to the um, Office of you know, Naval Intelligence in the UK in the 1880s, which during World War One, under Captain Blinker Hall, the famous Blinker Hall that cracked the um, Zimmerman telegram mm. coach with his uh, code breakers in room 40 in the Admiralty mm. in the Great War, they worked very closely together after the war and then leading up to the um, Second World War with what became uh, Bletchley Park during the post-war period after World War One, all of the room poorly code-breaking morphed into the government code and cipher school, which became uh, later on Bletchley Park. And then after the war uh, became um, GCHQ, which is still there in Cheltenham today. We can talk about it. There's, you can look at satellite pictures of the, of the uh, donut. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, all, it's, all, it's all there. And there were very very significant number of people who came out of that whole process during World War II that then uh, created the uh, the Five Eyes community after the war. Now, in 1943, there was a very important agreement called the Brusa Agreement, B-R-U-S-A, which essentially um, legally created the relationship between the UK and the US in terms of intelligence sharing. And that went into law, actually, the date was March the 5th, 1946. Now, the British, by definition, brought with them the Canadians, the Australians, and the New Zealanders automatically because they were Dominions. They were part of the, not just the, the old British Empire, but they were actually um, true um, British states as Dominion powers. So they were automatically became members of the community and later became known as the Five Eyes because they were all joined together at the hip in intelligence sharing. And most people think that the United States has been the you know, the principal player. To a certain extent, it has in terms of numbers of bodies, you know, at the National Security Agency and uh, the NRO and CIA and all the other agencies we've got over here, which is an enormous number, by the way, whereas the British, as you know, have just MI5, MI6, GTHQ, and the Defense Intelligence staff. And so do the other three um, members, the Canadians, Australians, and New Zealanders, created similar institutions modeled totally on the, the British institutions. So all of that is how the Five Eyes came into being during World War One, and the sharing of intelligence went on forever. It still goes on as I speak. And so geography played an important part, uh, where people had various assets around the world, locations. The British had facilities in all sorts of good places to intercept communications. So did the Kiwis and the Australians and the Canadians. And so it was a it was hugely beneficial to the United States to have, for example, you know, the benefits of um, you know various you know various facilities. I mean, most people don't realize that just south of um, uh, Alice Springs in Australia is a huge Australian facility. And right now, I can tell you without breaking any rules, there's about 3,000 Americans working there right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, that's been going on for a long time. And people say, well, what are the Kiwis? What are the, what are the New Zealand's little country like that? What do they contribute? I mean, what, what do they do? And it's like, well, they do a lot. If anyone's been to the Marlborough uh, Vineyard area of uh, South Island, up in the northern part of South Island, and you've ever been to a vineyard called Spy Valley Vineyard, where they make an un unbelievably good Sauvignon yeah, Blanc. It's a great If you wine. go down the dirt road past the vineyard, yeah. I've driven, been there obviously several times, <laughs> you go down the road, around the corner, and down over the hills, and then suddenly you're looking at what looks like a mini GCHQ or National Security Agency. A uh, very significant facility. The idea that the Kiwis are, you know, minor players is just not true. And similarly with the, the other two nations, the Canadians and the Australians, they have facilities around the world. They have embassies. They, they have uh, clandestine services very much modeled on the British SIS or MI6. And they have their own communications intercept capabilities. And they're very, very good. They do a great job. If you look at what the Australians contributed during the famous Venona project, which, um, you know, uncovered a lot of the British spies, which was our intercept of the KGB and GRU communications networks, the Australians were critical. 
And they were the people that actually, through Venona, uh, got to Kim Philby and his friends. And so, you know, the British spy. So the, the Australians, you know, the Canadians, because of their geography, have played a critical part um, in the business. So it's not just, you know, uh, we here in the United States with all our resources and funding to do various things. It's It's been very much a, a, a wonderful, wonderful mm. Uh, organization what's really great about your book is that it's sort of a part historical record of the five eyes intelligence alliance and it's also part memoir of your role within it and you entered this world in 1968 you mentioned a little bit earlier so could you talk to us a bit about your sort of early experiences between 1968 and 1974 and what you learned about sort of five eyes intelligence during that time Yes, certainly. I mean, I was I, I was running in parallel several things. I was a career naval officer, but I was working at a, a very special place, which I can talk mm. about now because it's closed down. They've moved uh, various things from it, and it used to be in, in uh, Upper Lodge in Bushy Park, and it was a very clandestine place that no, most people didn't know about, and well, no, shouldn't have known about. And we we managed all sorts of collection and analysis operations from there, which I, I still can't talk about because they're, they're still persist today, but through other other locations, okay? And I was involved in all of that, and I was also, at the same time, running in parallel. I was doing, the Navy was funding a doctoral program for me, and I wrote um, a King's College London PhD thesis called Studies in British Naval Intelligence, 1880-1945. And my supervisor was actually at Cambridge, um, Sir Harry Hinsley, who was the Bletchley Park co-breaker and then the official historian. And he was he who introduced me long before it became public knowledge. In fact, the first book even to him, even allowed to uh, mention Bletchley Park was written by a guy called Winterbottom, who had been a wing commander during the war and was a, basically a courier mm, mm. taking the Bletchley material to uh, key people in, in, in London. But... Uh, but the actual data and all that, all the real inf information to do with what was in the, you know, what what they broke, you know, what they broke from the German Enigma Code, it didn't come out until Hinsley's official history, much, much, much later. So I was very privileged when he introduced me to the material in the vaults uh, beneath the Foreign Office in London, and I, my, my eyes were open, of course, I was sworn to secrecy, couldn't talk about it, couldn't use it, couldn't quote it, couldn't do anything with it. But at least he wanted me to know you know, what really had gone on that changed the course of history and changed the course of World War II. Because without that knowledge, I, you know, I was in a little bit in the dark myself, and he wanted me to know about it. So that was a very privileged situation. And while I was working at um, Upper Lodge, um, you know, I was, I was backwards and forwards to do all this stuff as well as run my daily job. And I worked in a very interesting organization, the Applied Psychology Unit there, yeah. well, which I can talk about, which gave me a lot of insight into, um, how shall I say, personalities, uh, leadership issues, gave me insight into how to look at the uh, leadership of the Soviet Union and understand their motivations, their goals and ambitions. And, you know, later on, I obviously became very much a, a naval, on the naval side of things, although I dealt with other things other than the Navy, um, the Navy was big because the Soviet Union saw the Navy as a means of expanding their global influence. I mean, everyone thinks about the Cold War as being the, you know, the FIBA, the, you know, the forward edge of the battle area in Europe and all of that stuff and, you know, the Red Army facing NATO. But really, that was never going to happen. We all know that. Um, it was really in the oceans of the world where the Russians were trying to expand their influence, get footholds in various countries, build up relationships and expand their influence both uh, militarily and through trade and, and technology, etc. So, you know, I, I got a big insight very quickly into the Soviet mindset as well as, if you like, Soviet operations and all that technology and stuff that, you know, most people are familiar with. So it was a, it was a very interesting period for me. And then I got, I got a job at Greenwich as a senior lecturer and tutor on the various courses at Greenwich where you know, I, I taught specifically, you know, intelligence things, because although I was quite very young still and quite junior, you know, I was promoted to lieutenant commander, and I was 28, and I went to Greenwich, and I was by far the most junior and youngest, um, you know, person there. I was in uniform, obviously, but I was sort of quasi-academic, 
Well, you know, and I was working with a very distinguished uh, head of a depart- the department there, uh, Professor Brian Ramft, who'd been at Balliol College, Oxford, during before World War II with Dennis Healy, the man who became Minister of Defense in the 1960s in the Wilson government, uh, who'd been a communist member of the Communist Party, if you remember, and gave all that up in uh, 1939, 1940, when he joined the British Army and fought with great distinction, so did Brian Ramft. So Brian Ramft had a lot of connections um, obviously in the intel community and in the Ministry of Defense and here in the United States. And he was a great boss to have, although he was at loggerheads with Dennis Healy over the changes he made in the 1960s that affected uh, the Navy pretty significantly, including uh, not renewing uh, the next generation of fixed-winged aircraft carriers, uh, which he stopped. I mean, he stopped the whole program and put Britain back out of the fixed-wing naval aviation uh, business for the best part of uh, what almost 50 years until the um, you know the the current two carriers HMS Queen Elizabeth and HMS Prince of Wales you know they're commissioned at sea and and uh, Queen Elizabeth is deploying very shortly uh, to East Asia uh, fully with a including a squadron of U.S. Marine Corps F-35Bs on board and also having as an esc- one of the escort ships along with the British. Uh, Royal Navy escorts and nuclear submarines, etc. Um, an American Ali class, uh, Ali Burke class uh, destroyer, mm. going to be permanently uh, working with the Queen Elizabeth. So they, when they get into the Indian Ocean, and then working with the Indian Navy and the Australian Navy, and then into the South China Sea and the Sea of Japan, they'll be fully integrated in terms of com- command control and communications with the United States Seventh Fleet. So all of that is, today is a long, long history of working together since that famous meeting uh, on the Prince of Wales on August 10th, 1941. There's a, there's a lineal, lineal connection right the way through the last umpty-um decades until right now. Yeah. So I was privileged to be part of that and so that was me through, you know, it's into sort of the early 1970s. I had a very good grounding. I was privileged to know people like, you know, Harry Hinsley and, and several other, you know, key people. Sir John Masterman, who ran the double cross system. I was, uh, privileged to know him, to know Lord Blackett, the father of operations research, who'd been in the Admiralty working with, uh, Room 39 on using operations research. Uh, applications to uh, detect U-boats in the Atlantic. I mean, it, it was an incredible group of people I was privileged to know in the 1960s. Unfortunately, Admiral Godfrey died in 1970, who yeah. was the DNI, and his wife allowed me to have access to his private papers, not his admiralty papers, they belonged to the government. But his personal papers, I was the first person to see and, and use um, and know about, and then later on they were transferred to the National Maritime Museum at Greenwich, so I knew Admiral Godfrey, and I was I was very privileged to be able to look through his through his private notes and papers that he kept, actually, which his wife had, um, um, at the time of his passing in 1970. Mm. So you know, I was very lucky. There was one one conversation that stood out in your book that was really interesting was your chat with um, General John Frost, and you talk about the legacy of operations biting in Market Garden, which were both had very different outcomes. Um, can you talk to us about sort of the significance of that conversation and for the challenges that were then faced by the Five Eyes Alliance from the Soviet Union between a sort of uh, 1974 and 78? What those conversations brought out in light of what I was then doing and thinking mm. was that, you know, one was a huge success um, because they had full intelligence. It was integrated um, uh, whereas Market Garden, as we know historically, uh, was a mess. Mm. You know, there was a lot of very uh, bad analysis. I mean, well, not bad analysis of intelligence, but bad use of intelligence, although there was some good analysis, but it was kind of ignored. But in fact, the Operation Biting was a huge success because they looked at every aspect in advance. They collected the intelligence. They knew the score. They knew what they were doing when they went in there to get that uh, radar. And, uh, you know... It was a very dangerous operation. And, of course, uh, you know, Johnny Frost was really a brilliant leader uh, and uh, knew his business as, uh, you know, as, as a commanding officer. And then, of course, the, the whole Bridge Too Far saga and the movie and all that stuff were very well-known history. But 
you know, it, what it showed was, that, and this is the key point, what was needed was integrated, what I call integrated real-time intelligence. Now, obviously, in those days, with the limit of communications and no satellites or any of that stuff until much decades later, um, there wasn't that, that kind of communications ability to have the real-time flow of data so you could actually, you know, in the case of Market Garden, know where that Panzer division was and where they were moving, that they're actually in the air and they're moving towards the, the bridges and particularly mm. the Arnhem Bridge, right? I mean, all of that stuck with me very, very significantly what he told me. And believe you me, after Gulf War One, and I'm jumping ahead now, General Schwarzkopf came back after World, uh, Gulf War One, yeah. and came to Washington and went and testified in open and close, uh, you know, classified uh, meetings with the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Permanent, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Said, look, intelligence sucked. What what happened was bad because the high level stuff couldn't get to the people who needed it because of clearance issues, communications issues, keeping stuff behind what we call the green door in the business. And so access was limited, and they didn't get the intelligence needed. For example, scud hunting, you know, the missiles that the um, Iraqis were firing, particularly into Israel, and against our own people. And our own SAS, along with American special forces, were tasked to track them down and... Um, get rid of those uh, scuds. Well, that was extremely difficult because the intelligence was not flowing correctly and at the right level. So all after that, I was involved in a program here with many others, um, a very, very significant program to bring together what we call real-time multi-level intelligence that could be given to the frontline warfighter, at least at the secret level. So everything would be like downgraded. So if you had a very high level satellite image or intercept that was at a very, very special level, but you could downgrade it and do things with it and then but give it to the warfighter in near or actual real time, then that was going to be incredibly beneficial. So if you knew, hey, Scud X is right here, right now, and it's moving along that road so many miles an hour, and there is it, we can target it right now, boom, then that's what we needed to do. And I was privileged to work on a program that's uh, done all that, and, and we now have the Five Eyes that have now a very, very, very high-quality integrated you know, real-time capability. Well, coming back to General Frost, he, he, he inculcated in me that notion of, of integrated intelligence sources and methods to, to combine them to give you a very good picture of what the threat is, what the problems are going to be when you start to do things like when they attack that station to, to, you know, to get that radar, and they actually captured the key technician, the German technician they brought back to the UK. It was a brilliant operation. And they, did, they knew everything. They knew all about the tides. They knew about the beach and all that for getting off and, and getting in and getting out. And, and they, they, it was a very, as opposed to Market Garden, which was, a, as we all know, a military disaster. Uh, only redeemed by the courage of the of the of the of the unit that um, he commanded as a lieutenant colonel. Mm -hmm. So it was it was that was a very important lesson for me that I carried forward in my mind later on when uh, you know I was in the business over here and doing things with uh, the uh, national intelligence community. One other thing that stood out in that period for me was, uh, you talked about it a little bit earlier, about this it was stability on land in Europe, but at the same time, at sea, it was a very different sort of situation with uh, with Russia. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, the, the, the Russians were, were wanting to gain access through their navy uh, to various places. For example, if we take the June War of 1967, the Russians were involved in that, and they're whole objective was to support um, Syria and Egypt mm. in uh, various ways, and, but, but mainly in terms of take Egypt to gain access to um, the key ports in Egypt, particularly, obviously, um, Alexandria, and also to provide weapons. They, providing weapons was one way to, to leverage relationships and, become, and, and to have uh, various countries become dependent upon the Soviet Union. And the Navy was the key way of doing that because that was their means of access. And port access was very important so they could build up uh, places for their bases, for logistics, and for working with uh, friendly nations. And so um, 
when I was here in the mid-70s working um, out of the British Embassy with the U.S. intelligence community and the Navy, we were looking very seriously at how the Soviet Union was doing all of that and what we need, we need to do to counter it. And, and I was very much involved in looking at the Middle East situation uh, for the U.S. government and, and, and specifically looking back to that June war to see what the, how the Soviets had operated, what they did, and what their modus operandi was going to be in the future because they were really, really gearing up their Navy hugely in every domain, including obviously the submarine force, which was the one that worried us most and which was the, um, uh, you know, their the, the, the critical uh, means of, uh, you know, their deterrent, but also, worst case, their means of um, uh, threatening us in the, in the worst eventualities. So all of that became extremely important for the Five Eyes as a, as a whole community to, you know, uh, collect intelligence, analyze it, and agree on what the what the conclusions were, which were presented to the various leaderships of the of the countries, and also to pass information on to our NATO allies. It wasn't exactly um, there's been some controversy over the fact the Five Eyes have kept themselves pretty much to themselves, but they had bilateral relations, multilateral relations based on quid pro quos for intelligence collection and exchanges. So the UK might have a special relationship with country X, the United States with country Y, the Canadians with country Z, and so forth. And there'll be sort of reciprocity in exchanging of information. But the Five Eyes never, ever wanted to share their, what I would call the, the crown jewels because there were security risks there. I mean, there'd been enough risks I mean, for example, the UK had its various spies. I mean, not just the Cambridge spies. It had a lot of nuclear spies. It had the Portland spy ring and so on and so forth. And obviously over here, you know, we had our, our serious problems as well. Um, uh, both that we had the FBI spy, Ames at the CIA, and much earlier, you know, we had the Navy spy ring that operated, what, from 1967 till the early 1980s. Yeah. So um, all of that was a lesson that you have to be very careful about how you share intelligence who has access because we'd learned our lessons in the UK. I mean, I remember being positively vetted several times and you were literally taken apart. I mean, very, very thoroughly and uh, extremely professionally to make sure that people who had access were were as good as gold and were secure. Uh, whereas, in, you know, in the pre, pre-PVing days, people like Philby, Back in the 30s, you know, got recruited by his, you know, his various friends into MI6 in what 1940 because of a sort of good old boy network coming out of Cambridge. Whereas, in fact, the KGB had recruited them all in while well, they were students in the 1930s, and they uh, continued to spy for the Russians right or Soviets right the way through until they uh, defected to the Soviet Union. In the case of Philby, uh, uh, late uh, fall of 1963, mm. if I remember correctly. Yeah. So, you know, all of that played to the five eyes sticking together. And today, you know, we are looking at bringing the Indians and the Japanese much, much closer to the five eyes. They already are. And it's very much a, a building up a relationships on a quid pro quo basis, but also sharing intelligence in those domains which are relevant. Like, for example, today, the Indian, uh, the Indian government, they, we've sold them what we call the P-8, which is a very important aircraft made by Boeing. It's a maritime reconnaissance and anti-submarine warfare airplane, the best in the world. And we've sold the P-8 to the Indian Navy. So that's so. in order to use the P-8, obviously it has to be mutual exchange of intelligence on um, submarines, uh, communications, acoustics, all the all whole domain of things, several domains of different things related to um, you know, the Indian Ocean operations now where the Chinese Navy are operating that built a submarine base in Gwadar in, uh, in Pakistan and, and so on in Djibouti. They've, they've got a big facility there. So, you know, the, the relationships are growing in the Five Eyes community, but whether they will open up Pandora's box, I think, is unlikely because why do you do need to do that if people don't need the information? They I think the basis is that the, the concept is give our allies the information that they need um, for their part in the um, deterrence currently of, of China, 
for example, or, or Putin's Russia, and not 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 give 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 away things that, that they don't need to know about. Yes, you don't see a, a six or seven eyes community anytime soon. Then, yeah, I, d- I don't see that. I mean, we've got the Quad, or what's called the Quad, mm. which is you know you know the United States, Japan, and uh, uh, Australia and India. So that relationship is already uh, building, and on top of that, you have the Five Eyes. So intelligence sharing is already going on. There's no question about that. I mean, it is, but it's it's like well, you, you need to know everything. You know, I mean, it's like. You know, a lot of it's not even relevant because it's not geographically relevant, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With your book, you mentioned that there were some key political and structural changes between 1978 and 1983 that had an effect on the Five Eyes during that time. Do you want to talk about those changes? The precursor to this had been the the changes in the 60s. Mm. And let me just talk about those. In the UK, the, the UK followed the American model of the 1947 model where we create over here a a unified um, staff in what became, you know, the, uh, you know, the Pentagon, okay, uh, with the central, you know, with with a, with, a, with a defense staff that was integrated and the services were all integrated and blah, 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 into the Joint Chiefs of Staff, okay, uh, and that whole structure. Well, the British under Healy created a similar organization in 1964, which created the Ministry of Defense, Within that organization, the Navy suffered because they'd lost the role of, they'd lost the actual title of First Lord of the Admiralty, was a member of the cabinet. That was done away with. The Navy was pushed down in what became a very big bureaucratic organization in a central defense staff in London. And so there was some good and bad about that. There was goodness insofar as it led to greater probably cooperation, mm. but that was mm. already ongoing as World War II showed yes. very, very convincingly. And a lot of people were against it, including myself. And a lot of other people, because it it it, it, it basically created extra layers of bureaucracy when in fact cooperation was already ongoing. But what it did do was to, from a navy point of view and a naval intelligence point of view, was to downgrade the the navy within a very large now bureaucracy within the centralized Ministry of Defense. And the the office of the Director of Naval Intelligence was um, obliterated; was gone forever. The last one was someone who was one of my mentors, Vice Admiral Sir Norman Ned Denning, who after retirement became chairman of the D-Notices Committee, and he was the last DNI. And so all of that got changed into a central staff organization with lots and lots of layers of bureaucracy. When I was working in the intelligence community, I had to deal with a lot of bureaucrats who didn't know their business, who were, you know, integrated into the system, and it was like peeling back a, you know, an onion. Uh, and so I was never, I was never a particular big fan of centralization, whereas in fact there'd already been decades of cooperation between the Royal Air Force, the Army, and the Royal Navy. I mean, it wasn't like the, there was a need to tell people, tell people how to do combined operations. I mean, Admiral Van Batten had been the first head of combined operations during World War, World War Two. Anyway, enough of that. But but to come back to your question about the late um, 1970s. Uh, the, the, the changes there were good because the Soviet Union was really ramping up big time. There was no sign of the Soviet Union uh, fizzling out as it did in the late 1980s and early 1990s. But, but what happened was the, the United States, after Jimmy Carter ceased to be president, Ronald Reagan came in, there was a definite change in attitude and, and influence with the people he put in the top jobs, particularly in intelligence, particularly the directorship of the Central Intelligence Agency, for example, and the cooperation with the British and the, and the Five Eyes generally. There was a, if you like, an in, a new impetus, a new dynamic happening after a certain amount of, um, oh, I would say, I wouldn't say it was moribund, because that's just not true, but it was not the, it was not the, fire in the belly stuff that we'd had early within the five eyes. So there was a, a big change uh, with the coming of the Reagan administration um, in this country. And of course, the Falklands War in 1982, the United States gave the British every support possible that they could. Um, and that was, a, that was another signal to the Russians, the Soviet Union, that... Um, you know, the, the United Kingdom could deal with a problem like the Argentinian invasion, but also that its allies, its principal ally, was sticking by it uh, through thick and thin. 
So there were there were changes, structural changes. There were disagreements over certain aspects of the threat. There were technical, but they were always resolved. I mean, there weren't there, there was no acrimony. It was just professional, you know, issues of interpretation of data and all that kind of stuff. I remember well, but it was a period of very very intense um, cooperation. Um, after a period of you know uh, being a little bit moribund. Mm. One thing about the Falklands that's quite interesting is um, you mention it another place in your book too is about sort of sometimes there are kind of should we say conflicts of interest might I don't know that's the best way to put it where you know a, a member state Britain has a conflict with Argentina but then other other member states can't necessarily directly get involved and that's quite an interesting kind of conundrum really for the Five Eyes Alliance isn't it? I think it was I mean there were historic claims that Britain has and still had and still does obviously in terms of um, that in places like Gibraltar, etc. I think I think there are issues right now um, that Britain faces, if I may say so, over over the issues over Mauritius and the controversy of the United Nations Court of Arbitration fining against the United Kingdom and saying, look, you don't have any claims to uh, you know various areas there. And I think that that could have been resolved more satisfactorily by agreement uh, some time ago. A bit like what happened in Cyprus with the sovereign base at Akrotiri, which, you know, is a very important, not only RAF base for staging operations and refueling and all that, but but also obviously as a a place for intelligence collection in terms of, you know, uh, electronic surveillance, Elint and Sigint and all that. Very important. And similarly with these other places in the Indian Ocean, I think that Britain's been very slow to not really address that issue and face the reality which the United Nations Court of Arbitration has, and saying, look, you, you actually don't have any rights of ownership. So you sort of negotiated something before this situation arose, in my opinion. But at the same time, recognizing that India, for example, has several key island facilities in the Indian Ocean in very key locations, and that those can be leveraged as well. And so the Five Eyes need to you know, get on board with India in terms of uh, leveraging their various geographic advantage, uh, advantageous locations to uh, use as both intelligence gathering places and also for uh, airstrips, air bases, and so on. So, you know, I think I think that's all uh, history now in terms of uh, you know the, the Falklands. I mean, I think Britain's got very good defensive measures to protect the Falkland Islands. And uh, hopefully the Argentinians won't try anything uh, foolish in the future. Yeah. So you've said that between 1983 to 2001, the special relationship was at its best. And obviously, unfortunately, 2001 is when September the 11th happens. Can you talk to us a little bit about that sort of period of time where the special relationship was at its best? And also talk to us a little bit about September the 11th and its legacy for the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance. I think that period in the 80s was good because we'd we really got our arms around the Soviet threat. Mm. We had really amassed the arts of all the intelligence arts of um, special collection and analysis and distribution. And there was there was very very few controversies over um, conclusions regarding you know an- analysis of where things were at. I think we we had become so good and so professional as a team across the board, all five countries collectively at various meetings, gatherings, all the usual stuff, exchanges. And I want to ex- I want to emphasize exchanges. There's so many jobs exchanged between the five countries that each country had members everywhere in every intelligence agency in each of the five eyes countries. So there were people on the ground throughout the whole period. <clears throat> it was hugely successful because it built relationships. And as, as I stressed in the book, Relationships is the key to the five eyes. It's about professional pe- relationships, people who know people for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, like I, I've known people. <clears throat> and so, you, you know, you, you, can't, you, you can't substitute that in terms of uh, making sure that there's continuity of operations. And I think by the 80s, we'd really got there. You know, we had terrific cooperation, outstanding collection operations, very good analysis and distribution to the... Uh, uh, the leadership of the Five Eyes countries. So I think it was a, you know, it was a very, very successful time for those reasons. But I think it was the culmination of years of working hard 
to preserve the what I call the integrated community based on uh, relationships and exchange of personnel. And that, that led to all the you know all the usual gatherings and meetings. But people just people knew people. You know, when I was running some special programs in the UK, you know, I could I could call up my opposite numbers. You know, walk across to the American embassy or the other embassies, whatever. You know, talk to our exchange officers. I mean, it was like a uh, it was like a, a family, mm. and so I think that's that has persisted. I think it's still as good today as it was then. Jumping ahead to 2001, I mean, there were some surprises. I think there were some mistakes made on this in this country prior to the embassy bombings in East Africa. I think we knew about Osama bin Laden long before the American public even knew who he was and how to spell his name. We knew about various things, and I think quite a few of us were in favor of um, taking him out while he was in the Sudan, but we didn't. For, I won't go into the details of that because it's a little sensitive. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think the, those bombings occurred, and then quickly, you know, we bombed the mm. wrong targets in the Sudan, by which time, you know, he'd escaped to Afghanistan. So I think we, we, you know, we were very slow to actually take what I call kinetic measures against the burgeoning organization that Osama bin Laden was running. And I think that was our mistake. But I wouldn't go into any more than say I think we we knew where he was. We could have we could have got rid of his whole uh, the whole crowd of them in a compound in the Sudan, but we didn't when we had the moment in time to do it. And I think that's enough said there. I think we were so. I think what we're saying is that we we had the intelligence, but we didn't act on it in the appropriate way. I think we then you know we then the the controversy over the invasion of Iraq. I think. It's pretty well documented, and various friends of mine, you know, sat on your commission in the UK to um, look at that, which took uh, several years. A very good friend of mine, Sir Lawrence Friedman, was on that commission, and I think you know the outcome of all that. It's been published. I think over here, um, I was against the invasion. I thought it was not a legal thing to do. Personally, that was my opinion. I was against it, and I think we didn't realize that not only was, I mean, Saddam Hussein was a bad person, no question about that, mm, mm. but he was also a counter to Iran and actually was a counter to uh, Al-Qaeda. He was, a, he, was not, <clears throat> he was not a friend of Al-Qaeda at all. He, he, he was a, very much against Al-Qaeda mm, and any mm. kind of terrorist organization inside Iraq. So I think that was a strategic mistake that we made, a huge strategic mistake, but that's that's history now. It's no good, you know, crying over spilt milk. But I think we 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 took our time in uh, building up the intelligence process to deal with a burgeoning Al Qaeda that morphed into ISIS, and now we've got a different threat, which is, you know, state-sponsored uh, or surrogate-sponsored or illegal operations through the internet to influence various groups. For example, we have a problem now in the United States with extreme right-wing groups clearly being influenced by foreign sources, particularly uh, Russia and others. And so, you know, that's a new domain we've morphed into out of the original al-Qaeda-ISIS domains. Mm. What are the kind of key concerns of the Five Eyes now? Because obviously we've got Russia, China, you've already mentioned sort of right-wing terrorism and terrorism in general. What are kind of like the key things you think that are, are keeping them busy at the moment? Obviously, China's huge. We're working there, I mean, 24-7 right now, uh, keeping an eye on China in every intelligence domain possible. Yeah. But I think the the future um, technical threat will come from uh, quantum computing um, and all the issues associated with with new um, applications of computer technology. And it'll affect encryption, and that's a very important you know, part of the whole intelligence process is having very secure communications and encryption, and also the ability, dare I say, to decrypt others' communications and and uh, you know learn what they're up to. I mean, it's the old old business of Sigint and Elon. But I think that's technically a very very important domain where, particularly, quantum resistant technology will impact um, collection uh, and also impact our own ability to. Uh, hide things. So I think the Five Eyes have technically got to get ahead in that domain. Very important that we plan ahead now and get the best brains in the five countries uh, to work on this and, and, and be one step ahead, a bit like we were in, you know, in the past. The 5G network issue is huge. We've got to make sure we 
<clears throat> can protect it and also penetrate it. I mean, it's two things at once. And similarly with undersea communications, we've got to make sure that, um, you know, traditionally we know all about undersea communications. Most people don't realize that 95% of the world's data, video, and all the rest of it goes through undersea cables. It's not via satellite. It's hugely vulnerable, and we have to protect those cables and make sure that we can also exploit them. Similarly yeah. with GPS vulnerability, we've got to make sure that GPS is protected. No question about it. I think on the deception side of things, the Five Eyes need to move into what I call a new era of deception so that we can stay ahead of the game in making sure that electronically and, if you like, psychologically, um, the opposition um, doesn't really know where we're coming from all the time, but we know where they're coming from, and we can play games with both their systems and also their mindsets. And I know that sounds bad, but it's a classic art that we learned many, many decades ago during World War II. So that's, a new, that's the future role of deception. It's very important. One thing that also came up in your book that was of interest to me. Now, I'm, as a, I'm a filmmaker, so I'm interested in people. And I suppose uh, if I have an espionage bias, it's probably for human because that's where all my stories have come from. And I noticed there's some significant challenges to human now. Um, and can you, well, can you talk to us about sort of the challenges for human and what its future might be? I think the problem with human is surveillance. There are so many clever ways to monitor uh, human operatives particularly anyone operating out of an embassy, which is a no-brainer in my opinion. I mean, you can't really run human operations out of an embassy now because anyone worth a darn will know who, who are the covert people and who aren't, who are the regular diplomats and who are the undercover people. It's kind of obvious. And, and so with, with modern surveillance techniques, both the usual camera stuff, but also uh, digital intercepts and all that of communication, cell phones, and so on and so forth, it makes human relationships extremely difficult to run agents. So I think we have to go back to re-examining that and figuring out how we can still continue to run um, human operations in what I call the digital era, right, in the surveillance era. I mean, in China, for example, right now, you can't move without being uh, surveilled. I mean, they're going to have a picture of you. They're going to know what you, you, you know, they're going to know exactly what you're saying on your cell phone. So it, it's tough. So to, to get around all that, you need to go back, in my opinion, to some classic human arts and sciences to do with how you, um, dare I say it, employ a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth level down, if you like, in the human chain, people who can provide you with good uh, human to information that isn't available from other sources. If it's available from other sources, you don't need human. And what am I talking about there? I'm talking about how you employ people who are obviously not aligned in any way with any formal intelligence organization or uh, or in any other way so that mm -hmm. they're so deeply um, down in the in the system that they're not detectable and that they are then they are then recruited and trained to, to operate for you. So yeah. I think that's something that um, you know, it's got to be looked at very, very, very seriously because the classic, um, you know, MI6, CIA operations, you know, are very easy to detect. I mean, they really are. So I think you have to be, you know, you've got to, you've got to have a new, you've got to have a, a different way of doing things with the same outcome. I mean, in other words, get the same kind of information you wanted uh, from um, clandestine human sources that can't be obtained by electronic means or by other means. Yeah, yeah, because the CIA had that terrible disaster in, was it 2009 to 2013, where they actually lost up, um, agents in China because their communication system had been penetrated in Iran, I believe it was, and then the Iranians must have sold that information to the Chinese. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's even worse now. I mean, it's, it's a few years ago, and things have... You know, they have even more clever, discreet means of, of, of doing all of that. So um, you, you can get around all this, but, but it, it, it will take what I just described. And if I was running things today, you know, I would be, <laughs> I don't want to go into too much detail, but you, can, you, you know where I'm going here. It's, it's called, you go deep, deep, deep down so that someone can never be associated with an operation or arrested or imprisoned or executed as a foreign agent. Mm. 
It's a problem, isn't it, with for people who, um, you know, for foreigners who are travelling to certain countries who get accused of being a spy and they have no diplomatic protection. It must be quite, uh, it's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I think it is, and it doesn't take much to work out who is who is who, you know, in any embassy. So embassies are extremely vulnerable places from from which to run any kind of human operation. I mean, it's like you know, forget it, really. In all the all the key target countries that we're really interested in, if you're in some, you know, place where the the counterintelligence is not known to be that good, well, that's maybe different. But they're obviously not the countries that are are on top of the list for collection mm-hmm. we're going to wrap up soon so i want to sort of quickly ask about what you think the future holds for the five eyes community and what challenges they might face i think the I think the five eyes have got a wonderful future because mm-hmm. we've got a new era of threats china putin's russia north korea iran and and then and then the whole if you like internet digital era problems yeah whether they're surrogates or just criminals or whatever hackers all of that I think poses a new challenge, and I think where the five eyes are critical uh, is simply in what I call brain power. You've got to bring together the very best brains of the five eyes nations, and the United States doesn't have the monopoly of brain power. I mean, we've got mon- probably a monopoly on wealth, but we don't have necessarily all the best people in the world, right? <laughs> the British have incredible mathematicians, scientists, and blah, 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 and so do the Aussies the Kiwis and the Canadians, <clears throat> and everyone can combine to produce some really, really brilliant stuff in the future. And I think we've got to plan that now. And I advocated that in the book. We've got to have strategies worked out today, meetings to, to, to do this, and then find the best and the brightest to do it. I mean, if you look at, say, if you go back to history, and I look through, you know, I go over my own career, and then I look back on what I learned about World War Two from uh, people like Harry Hensley and Sir John Masterman, I mean, they recruited the best and the very brightest you could get. I mean, the Alan Turing's of this world, right? I mean, for people who were frankly geniuses. You couldn't possibly have what I call, you know, in the U.S. contracting uh, community, the lowest bidder, right? <laughs> I've written about this recently. I think a lot of the penetrations over here, certainly the stuff that happened in December of all those government uh, penetrations of the U.S. government by foreign entities in December last year was because a lot of the systems were created by contractors. They're all built by contractors who were, frankly, in some cases, in quotes, literally the lowest bidder. In other words, contracting officers were giving people um, contracts when they weren't, in fact, the best. And so I think in the future, I've advocated that the U.S., you know, use it, I mean, take a bizarre example, the Manhattan Project. Can you imagine the Manhattan Project being given to the lowest bidder? Heck no, it was called J. Robert Oppenheimer and Edward Teller and all those other brilliant guys who were on the program, including a lot of British physicists, right? And so, you know, the same is true of umpty other programs. You, you, you would not have anything other than the very best that you can, people that you can get. And I think in the future, the Five Eyes have got to look at their contracting procedures in each of the countries and say, are we really really getting the very best people that um, we can find to work on these various programs. And I think that's that's been our undoing. <clears throat> For example, right now, the United Kingdom and the United States are rebuilding their, or building their replacement SSBNs, the Strategic Submarine Force, in parallel. Well, that, those programs have been penetrated. It's been in the Washington Post, so I'm not giving away anything. And very simple, if you go down, you don't have to go to Electric Boat or British Aerospace or Baron Finesse to break into their networks. You go down four, five, six, seven layers in the uh, industrial base, the supply chain, where they have very few, if any, cyber protection because they think, well, I'm a small company making Widget X, right? Well, Widget X goes into System A, right? The big system It's one of many components. So if you break into the, all those companies low down in the supply chain, you can build up a picture of the actual components that are going in to the replacement of our strategic deterrent. By ours, I mean the United States and the United Kingdom. So this is a good example of where we need to have much, much better cyber protection and, and, and vice versa. You know, we, we, we need to improve our own penetration technologies too. And this is where the five eyes collectively can get together and figure out the technical strategies for doing this, but employing the very best and the very brightest people we've got in all of these five countries, uh, and exploiting technology from other places too.
that we can be aware of. So, you know, that is a very, in my opinion, is a very important point. I did raise this at a meeting with the British ambassador before, before the current one, Sir Kim Darek, when he, before he fell out with uh, President Trump and, and uh, <laughs> left the embassy here in Washington with a group of people. Yeah. Um, we, we told him our concerns and issues. So, you know, we, I, I've, I've gone, I've gone official on, on my views on this with mm-hmm. others who mm-hmm. have got similar backgrounds to myself, both Americans and British yeah. citizens. Yeah. Quick random question. There's a couple of things that I've, with regards to um, SIGINT and technology being such a, a, a big sort of focus of things going forward, what I have noticed personally, and obviously I, um, this is a generalization, but I've noticed a lot of people in the technology world tend to be very anti-government and very kind of uh, libertarian in their opinions. Do you think that creates a challenge for recruitment um, for people for government work in the future? Um, I think it does. I think, I think the answer is yes. I think any, where you have a very, very bright people who feel they don't want to work for Uncle Sam or for the United Kingdom government, or particularly their intelligence agents, I think, you know, one loses resources there. I think the, the answer to that is, is probably uh, through the contracting community. Mm. Uh, where you know they they can do work, um, maybe not classified, but nonetheless is extremely valuable technically, and so that in, so their work can be can be uh, used eventually by the intelligence communities. Um, but I don't think it's I don't think over here it is a huge issue because there's such a large, if you like, technical graduate population, and certainly both postgraduate level where people. You know, are patriotic and feel they want to c- contribute. I, I, I don't think it's a big issue in the United States. I mean, there are people who were against any kind of working for any kind of defense contractor, or certainly the government, you know, the Department of Defense or the intelligence community. But you know, I, I, I don't think they're a huge, you know, I don't think I don't I don't know the answer to, to the yeah, actual. No. Yeah. no, it's just something I've observed in the private sector. Is just there's a lot of very. Um, sort of anti-government sentiment a lot of the time you know employees of technology companies or state nameless but who who um you know have internal revolts over having any involvement of any sort of government programs and things like that which prevents then major technology companies from participating in something that could be important against the you know against the challenges from china or something like that no i i mean i think i think i think that's true chris i mm. mean i i don't there's no question about it. And certain universities in this country uh, will not sign contracts with the Department of Defense because, you know, their uh, bodies and their student bodies are against getting involved in, you know, defense-related things. Mm. Um, there's no question about that. Um, but I think we're still able, from what I can see, recruit, um, you know, on the technical level, PhD level, you know, students to work for the government mm, mm. i haven't seen i haven't seen an issue there over if you like a manpower no, problem no that's good <laughs> that's good cool well that gives me some faith because some of the people i've dealt with the private sector i'm just like oh my goodness if we reliance on them we're screwed but anyway <laughs> i mean there the have the, i mean there have been for example what i call technology gaps the mm. the peace dividend period in the 1990s after the perestroika and all that and the soviet union collapsing before 9-11 there was a I mean, there was a decline, not not in people wanting to work for the government, but there was a decline in, if you like, the the, the intellectual technology base because it atrophied because the, there wasn't the sort of dynamism in the community because the threat had gone away, the big threat had gone away, i.e., the Soviet Union, right? And before the emergence, you know, obvious emergence of China, and then the reemergence of uh, Putin's Russia, but you know, there was there was a lot of a lot of things atrophied. And I was one of the, if you like, continuity people. I'm not bragging. I, I don't want to sound immodest. I'm just one of many people, okay, who were, if you like, a continuity into the post-9/11 era, who remembered the Cold War, because during the 90s a lot of things atrophied. I mean, seriously atrophied. And so the, the, a lot of people had retired. A lot of systems had gone away, um, literally gone away, because they thought they weren't needed anymore. And so the, the next generation of that technology hadn't been created because there wasn't a need for it. And so there was a, there was a pick me up, 
um, period after 9/11, not not just because of the whole Al Qaeda ISIS thing, but because there was a reemergence, you know, of of the old kind of threats from the rise of China, and then you know Putin's Russia. Uh, although Putin's Russia, I don't see militarily. I, frankly, I don't see militarily as hugely challenging um, in terms of intelligence. Um, although I do find what he's up to right now in the Crimea worrying, um, yeah. um, massing yeah. troops on the on the border there of the Ukraine, I find that very worrisome. And I'm, I'm yeah. waiting for President Biden to use the Sixth Fleet uh, more proactively. But mm. we'll see what he does there. Um, but. You know, leaving that aside, you know, the, the, you know, there are these. Da- there was that. There was that period of atrophying. No question about it. Um, yeah. Well, look, Anthony, I better not hold you up any longer. But thank you so much for all your time today. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? I think the only thing I want to add is that the Five Eyes community is a vibrant, dynamic organization that will hopefully grow and and build these extra relationships, particularly with Japan and um, and India. Uh, those two nations are really critical in uh, the India, what we call the Indo-PACOM area of operations. Uh, very, very important, both at every level, both militarily, economically, and politically. And so, I think the Five Eyes has got a new, new dynamism, uh, a new lease of life to 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 deal with these challenges. And it's going to be very important to stick together. Mm. Excellent. Well, that's a good note to finish on there. Where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? The, I think the, you know, I'm an Amazon author. I've written several books, you know, I've written novels as well as professional books. And so, you know, I'm kind of on Amazon and, and, Go- and the usual Google stuff. Well, thank you for your time today. It's been great. Thank you very much, Chris. for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.